The reading this evening is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 2. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not ill-treat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favourable towards my young men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not ill-treat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields, near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. All the time, we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I will follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David, with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you, hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is Fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offence, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master, 
will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought to him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king, who was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing until daybreak. Then, in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong, and has, kept brought, and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Here is your maidservant, ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and, attended by her five maids, went with David's messages and became his wife. Thank you, Bethan. Uh, Good evening, my name is Jana, and I'm on the staff team here at HT, and let me add a welcome to you, Uh, welcome to HT, particularly if you're visiting, it's great to have you with us. This evening, we're continuing a sermon series where we look at things, sometimes familiar stories or familiar people, from an unusual angle. Last week, Ollie spoke about Goliath, and this evening, as we've just had read, we have Abigail. Now, I'm curious... Uh, Has anyone ever heard a sermon on Abigail before? We have a few, (laughs) a very few. I've been asking people all week and they're like, no, I don't even know who she is. This feels, this is a treat. This is like a a tropical island no one has ever seen before. And we get to walk around and explore it together, um, which is really fun. And at first glance, Abigail's appearance here in the book of 1 Samuel, it feels a bit token. First uh, Samuel, and in fact, Second Samuel, it's all one book, and we kind of split it down the middle for ease. Um, it's mostly political and military drama, right? Kings and battles and whatnot. It's action movie material. And uh, Abigail pops up a little bit like the token female role, you know, the love interest, just so they can get that passionate kiss into the movie trailer. <laughs> she just kind of feels like she pops in and then goes away again. But she is not a token role. Far from it. And even if they do get married at the end, uh, it's not a romance. This is a schooling. She teaches David something. We'll look at the story a little closer. If you're like me, 
uh, you heard it and you didn't quite follow all the social etiquette, uh, what exactly has gone wrong here. Um, I personally have never been to a sheep shearing in the Middle East, so I'm, I'm unsure what the etiquette is here. So we're going to unpack it a little bit and try to get a grasp of what's actually happening. And then we'll turn our attention to what David learns. Because to be honest, I, when I was preparing for this talk, I approached it kind of thinking, well, you know, what does Abigail learn here? What does Abigail learn about God? If we sat her down for a coffee and asked her that classic Christian question, what has the Lord been teaching you recently? You know, what would Abigail say? But as I've been studying this, I think that's the wrong question to ask Abigail. I'm not sure Abigail learns very much here. I think she received some wisdom from the Lord, but she's the teacher here and David is the pupil. So we're going to sit with David under the wisdom of Abigail and the Lord, which is a potent uh, power act, and see what it is that we can learn today. Um, Shall we just pray as we dive into this? Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you that your word is living and active, that it has as much power today as it has ever had, and we pray that you would use it to speak to us and to make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, to start, let's get to grips with what's happening here. Keep the passage open if you've got one of the red Bibles near you, um, or you can see it on a device of some kind. We're gonna keep looking at it. The main question, to my mind, is what exactly has Nabal done, and does it warrant David's violent response? Well, firstly, a little research has told me what I suspected, which is that David has effectively invited himself over to somebody else's party. He's not the king yet. He's been promised the the throne by God. Um, He's been promised the throne. And at this point, he's, he's a powerful and successful military commander. He has an impressive 600 fighting men who follow him around all the time, which is pretty good going. And here he's inviting himself over to Nabal's feast and apparently inviting all of his men also, which if you ask me, 600 fighting men is a pretty creative interpretation of a plus one, but he's tried it anyway. And the upshot of this is that David is an intimidating person to say no to. So while he doesn't actually threaten Nabal, he does put him in a tricky position if Nabal decides he doesn't want him to come. It also seems that Nabal has done, uh, David, sorry, has done Nabal a good turn. It's not just from his own men. This is from the account that the servant gives Abigail. If you look at verse 15, which is kind of at the page split, the servant says this, yet these men, he's speaking of David's men, were very good to us. They didn't ill-treat us. It says, night and day they were a wall around us. All the time we were herding our sheep near them. Rather than causing trouble or even just turning a blind eye, David's men have defended Nabal's men in the past. Now, it's not entirely clear whether the favor that David has done Nabal warrants an invitation to the party or not, but the, past, the passage doesn't really make that clear. What is abundantly clear is two things. Number one, Nabal is straight up rude in his refusal. He could have taken another tact, right? He could, have, he could have gone down the line of, we are not worthy of your company. He could have said, here's a gift as a token of our appreciation. But instead, he goes down the, who on earth are you line. And it is very, very unlikely that he did not know who David was. 
Like, this is almost exactly what he says. If you look at verse 10, flip back over the page. He says, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? And then he says, this is really, you can almost imagine him spitting as he says this. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. That is, that is a straight up insult. Nabal has basically just spit in David's face. So he is straight up rude. The second thing that's, that is abundantly clear here is that David's violent reaction is not what might be called a proportional response. He has been publicly insulted, but even adjusting for cultural differences, David's reaction is overkill, literally. So what's happened is that David has invited himself over, Nabal has insulted him, and David decides to kill every last man in Nabal's household as revenge. So, it is into this mess of slighted prides and insults that Abigail steps so elegantly um, and confidently. She hears what's happened, and she responds immediately. She grabs uh, substantial gifts that are, um, well, actually, they're so big. The quantity of gifts that she brings him, um, really, the only thing we're left to presume is that they were intended for the feast, that's why they were there on the side. So she just grabs all of the party food <laughs> and heads straight to meet David straight away herself. And maybe she's composing her speech on the way. Who knows? But it is a masterclass of diplomacy and flattering rebuke. There is so much wisdom and tact going on here. She is in, in many ways the absolute polar opposite to her husband. She throws herself in front of David's anger and she manages to turn him around 180 degrees so that he thanks God for her. And between a combination of Abigail's wisdom and diplomacy and the Lord's acting um, in the case of Nabal, David learns a few things. And we're just going to explore one of them in detail. The main lesson for David is this. This battle, this mudslinging battle with Nabal. This is the Lord's too. This battle is the Lord's too. You might remember from last week or from back in Sunday school that when David met Goliath, one of his ringing declarations as he stood in front of the giant was the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. Now, did you notice there's a reference to a sling in Abigail's speech? Have a look at verse 29 if you can find it. She says this to him, even though someone is pursuing you, she's talking to David, to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. Isn't that a wonderful image? Bound, bound in the bundle of the living. But she continues, the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Abigail refers back to David's famous standoff and basically says, this battle is the Lord's too. I know it looks different, Nabal, uh, David, because Nabal isn't trying to kill you, and he's not insulting the army of the living God, and he's not nine foot tall, but this battle is the Lord's just the same. This is not your fight, David. This is not your fight, any more than Goliath was your fight or any more than King Saul trying to kill you is your fight. This battle is the Lord's too. You let him right this wrong. 
I think this is the insight that God gives Abigail here. God doesn't just want to defend David's cause when it comes to the throne or when it comes to the primary promise over David's life, over his calling. God wants to defend David's cause in the mundane experience of being slighted. The retribution of the Lord covers this kind of social wrong as much as it does matters of state or matters of life and death. David had not connected the dots that trusting God extended to a situation like the one with Nabal. David had understood that he had to trust God with his arch enemy, with Goliath or King Saul who was out to kill him. He had a few arch enemies, but he hadn't understood that he had to trust God when it came to his minor enemies, that he couldn't just take care of the minor enemies however he wanted to, even the little fights, even the playground skirmishes, the Lord wanted to fight for him. In other words, every battle was the Lord's. Every battle was the Lord's. The Lord sends Abigail to David to say, back down, this is not your fight. Every battle is the Lord's. Every battle is the Lord's. Now, what might this mean for us today? How does Abigail's lesson translate, if it does, to us tonight? Well, there's two things I want to pick up in particular. And the first one is this. God asks for our reputations. God asks for our reputations. You know, I think this is one of the most relatable moments of David's life. I don't know about you, but most of my enemies are more likely to look like Nabal than they are like Goliath, right? They're more likely to be a case of insult than like an actual giant. But trusting God to defend us is just as applicable in both cases. God wants David to trust him, not just with his life, but with his reputation. And the same goes for us today. God wants us not just to trust with our lives, but with our reputations. So, when we are insulted, when in a meeting we're misrepresented, when we're slighted socially, we don't get to avenge ourselves. We might feel like blasting through town with 600 men and swords, but God would have us trust him to right the wrongs we receive. That doesn't mean we don't seek justice if it's appropriate, but it does mean we don't seek revenge. This is not our fight. Every battle is the Lord's. So let me ask you a few questions. Do you personally defend your reputation? Can you allow an insult against you to stand or a slight to go unanswered? Would you let God defend your reputation? Would you let God vindicate you? Because the claim here, the claim that Abigail makes and God upholds is that God will defend your reputation. It probably won't look like your insulter dropping dead like Nabal did, but the principle extends. And Abigail is absolutely on the money here. This is what we see Jesus doing at his trial, right? Choosing not to defend himself, but allowing God to vindicate him. And oh, is he vindicated. Both Peter and Paul talk about this. 
Peter, he draws on the example of Jesus at his trial. He writes about what to do when we're ill-treated. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Paul writes in Romans 12, again, don't repay anyone evil for evil. And then a bit later, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. This is not just about not physically returning blow for blow. This is about surrendering your right to defend your reputation and instead letting God uphold your cause. So, are you willing to let God be in charge of what other people think of you? The claim that the Lord makes of David here and of us today is that he wants to fight the battle of our reputations, and we have to surrender that to him. And David, you know, David seems to take this lesson to heart. There's a little episode much later on when uh, he, he's become king, he's been king for years, he's got sons that are grown up and actually trying to dethrone him. Um, and somebody comes along called Shemai who starts cursing David publicly. And he starts throwing stones at David and his men. And one of David's sidekicks is like, hey, can I just take this guy out? Can I just kill this guy? And David says, let him be. The Lord's in charge of cursing and blessing. The Lord will do what he wants. He basically says, the Lord keeps my reputation and he can do with it what he wants. The Lord asks for our reputations. Now, perhaps like me, you're feeling a little bit fidgety at this idea. The question springs to mind, why? Why is God interested in keeping my reputation? Why doesn't he just kind of look after his and I'll look after mine? Well, that question leads us to the heart of this particular book of the Bible, um, to the heart of first and, in fact, second Samuel that we're looking at this evening. Um, the theme of this book comes right at the very beginning. Uh, this book starts with a woman who is heartbroken that she can't have children. Her name is Hannah, and she calls out to the Lord. She's weeping and weeping, asking the Lord for a child. And the Lord hears her, and he, he gives her a son, and she calls him Samuel. And then she prays this amazing prayer in chapter 2, the gist of which is, God will bring down the proud, but he exalts the humble. God will bring down the proud, but he exalts the humble. And that becomes the lens through which we see all of the rest of the few books, right? The rise and fall of Saul, the rise of David. That is David's story, that God exalts the humble, but brings down the proud. But here's the thing. What does God mean by humble? When he says he exalts the humble, who qualifies? Because David isn't a shepherd boy anymore, like he used to be. Now he's a big deal. Now he's got 300 fighting men and throwing his weight around. What does it mean for David to be humble now? Well, humility, uh, humility is a bit of a tricky fish to fry. Not just tricky to define, but also tricky to do. But this request for our reputations is a key ingredient. One feature of humility is letting God control what people think of you. It's not just a case of not caring what people think, because sometimes it is right to care what people think. Humility means laying down our right to be thought well of when we deserve it, or our right to be recognized. 
but instead allowing God to decide how and when we're recognized. Let me say that again. Humility means letting God decide how and when we are recognized. We don't get to go through life trying to impress people. If God wants us to be impressive, he'll take care of it. What does this look like? If you're leading a Bible study, it means not wording a question so it makes you look knowledgeable or profound, but just wording it so it's useful. If you're taking a meeting at work, it means not bothering about whether or not you look good or impressive doing it, just whether you're doing the job the best you can. If you're a student, it means not contributing in class only when it makes you look good, but when you actually need help or when it helps others. If you're a parent, it's about not worrying about whether or not you look impressive while you're parenting. It's about loving those God has given you to love the best you jolly well can. And this is hard. It is hard to let God decide what to do with our reputations. But our job is to leave our reputation to God and instead just get on with what he's given us to do. This is the humility that God exalts. And actually, this is love. This is a kind of love that reflects the very heart of God. God asks for our reputations. And the good news is, in all of this, that God will not see us shortchanged. He just won't. The recognition might not come where and when we want it. Sometimes we want, want it in very specific scenarios, in front of very specific people. We might not get that. But as David learned, God is able to vindicate us. God's plan always prevails. He will bring down the, the proud and exalt the humble. And the second application for us tonight is this. Trust is the name of the game. Trust is the name of the game. David could trust God in extreme trials of life and death, which is impressive. He could trust God with his calling and with his arch enemies, but he had to learn to trust God in a different setting altogether, which was when he was personally insulted. And that's the way it works. God will always want to expand our trust in him to cover that little bit more of life than we where he trusted him before. God will be forever demanding that he can be trusted in what demonstrating he can be trusted in one area and always pointing to another being like, you can trust me there too and there and there. It's like that infuriating thing that swimming instructors do when they're like, oh, swim to me. And then they take a step back and then they take a step back. It's exactly the same. God says, come to me, you can trust me. And then he and then you can come here. And he, he does exactly the same thing. Not because he's trying to be irritating, though <laughs> sometimes it feels that way. But this is, this is the name of the game. We just have to remind ourselves, this is what God does. We learn to trust God, and then we learn to trust God, and then we learn to trust God more. This is what it means to follow God with our lives. I mean, what would you say to a footballer who's complaining all the time that all they ever do is try to get the ball and the goal over and over again? Everything is always about getting the ball and the goal. And you're like, of course, that's the game. Well, trusting God, that's our game. This is what we do. 
Over and over and over again in new ways, we learn to trust God. So is God challenging you to trust him in a new area right now or to a new extent? Maybe with a new job or trying to find a new one. Maybe in an old relationship or in a new one. Maybe with your reputation. If so, you are in very good company indeed. God's not picking on you. This is the name of the game. This is what we do. Let's take David's example to heart and accept the challenge. And you know what? The joy, the triumph of seeing God come through when we trust him would make footballers' celebrations look like child's play. They don't know real joy. Like the people of God know real joy when God proves trustworthy. Goliath falls, right? The people of Israel, they simply walk away from their oppressors. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk out of the fire. Paul walks out of prison. Daniel walks out of the lion's den. And Jesus walks out of the grave. God is faithful to his people. And we trust him, and then we trust him, and then we trust him. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that all through history you are faithful. Thank you that you prove time and time again that we can trust you. Thank you for your patience with us while we learn to trust you in new ways. Father, would you teach us to leave our reputation in your hands, however tempting it is to control what people think of us. And would you teach us the humility that you look for in your people so that we can glorify you. We pray this all in Jesus' name, our Lord and King, for his glory. Amen.